The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus, there is always reason to rejoice. Uh, for this Sunday, we are continuing on through the book of Philippians. So if you're new here with us, uh, my name's Matt. I'm the pastor here at Tri-City Church. And we have been working through the book of Philippians uh, since we started. We're going to go all through the fall. So today we're in Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 to 11. Uh, if you were here with us last week, uh, you'll know that uh, Pastor Jeff from Northview is here preaching. We have a lot of support from our partner churches. Uh, that's why we have some worship leaders here giving us a hand. And Jeff came and preached, and he actually preached verses 1 through 11. And so we're going to go back and do 5 to 11. Not because Jeff didn't do a great job, uh, <laughs> but because... Uh, this has got, there's so much packed into this passage that we, we plan on coming back to it and really looking at the last portion of the text. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, if you have a Bible, now's the time to open it up. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have ones that look like this. Uh, they're out in the back. And uh, you can always grab one of these if you forget yours, if you don't have one. If you're using one of these, our passage this morning is on page 841. So... Um, as an entry point for our passage, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the cross. Um, the cross is central to the Christian faith. Sort of obvious. Uh, every church, every church that calls itself a, a Christian church, tends to have a cross, either on a steeple or on its roof or something like that. Unless you're us, and we did renovations, we took down the steeple. Uh, but we intend to put up another cross, so don't be worried. Uh, we did take ours down, but the steeple itself was rotten, so it was for safety measures, uh, not because we don't want to put the cross as a focal point. So uh, we will put up another cross, and that, that tends to be what happens when you are a Christian church. You have the cross in your architecture. You have it uh, in your gathering space. You have it stamped on your Bibles. You even wear sometimes a cross around our necks. Uh, the cross is of such importance, uh, such magnitude that everything in the Christian faith revolves around the cross. Things of great importance uh, tend to do that in God's universe. Have you noticed that? Einstein helped us to understand that even in the physical universe, the makeup of the physical universe, things of importance tends to, sh they shape the physical universe. So, uh, for example, uh, stars, Right? Planets revolve around suns and stars because they have such physical mass and weight that they actually bend the fabric of space-time. Right? Anything that's near it is pulled towards it, like when you're standing in the middle of a trampoline. Right? And all your kids, they come tumbling towards your feet because you're bigger and heavier. And that's what happens when you are heavier, have greater importance. Things tend to revolve around you. Not that you're the focus of your family, but you, you get what I'm saying. The cross is kind of like that. The crosses have such uh, weight, such magnificence and glory that, that our very faith, the contours of our faith are shaped by the cross. That's true. We see that in the Bible. Uh, we see in the Old Testament foreshadows of the cross. We see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the cross is the climax of every book. 
We see in the New Testament letters, it's a response. How do we live in light of the cross? Even in the book of Revelation, God's final word to us, in there we find out that for all of eternity, the people of God are going to be singing and praising Jesus for his work on the cross. The cross is of great weight, of great importance. And yet I think we also know that it's possible to to wear a cross around your neck all of your life, and yet for the cross itself to have very little impact on your life. It's possible for the cross, though it should be very weighty and important, to be very light and kind of meaningless. I think of it a bit like, um, like a movie prop. Have you seen some of the, the amazing prop work that they can do? Uh, I'm a bit of a movie buff, so I like watching special features, and uh, I was watching the special features uh, for Saving Private Ryan, remember Spielberg's uh, World War II uh, movie, and in it, uh, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg were going to the set, pre-production, they're building everything, and uh, Tom Hanks is standing in front of uh, a World War II Gatling gun, one of the guns that would uh, shoot from the, the cliffs of Normandy, and the thing just looks like it weighs like tons. It's all gnarled and metal and dripping, and it just looks like it's enormous. And Tom Hanks, he grabs it, and he throws it to Steven Spielberg. He says, hey, look at this. And I thought, man, even movie stars are impressed by movie stuff, for one thing. But also, there's very often, it can be the case that things look very weighty, but actually they're not. And sometimes for Christians, the cross, we think that it has great importance in our life, but in fact, it has very little effect. Even though we know the cross, we don't... We don't see it rightly. It doesn't really uh, take up the focal point of our lives. So how can we make sure that we're seeing the cross properly? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to not only see the cross from our point of view, but also from God's point of view. It's good for us to ask questions like, what did, what did God the Father have in mind when he planned the cross? What did Jesus have in mind? What was his mindset when he went to the cross? The neat thing, the really cool thing about our passage this morning is that we actually get a window into the mind of Christ. Uh, Verse 5, which is our first verse, it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it's going to go on to explain the road to the cross and the importance of it, the significance of it. And what we find is in fact that the cross is all about the exaltation of Jesus himself. It's all about the glory of God. Certainly, it's for our benefit. But here, we see very, very clearly that from God's point of view, one of the greatest things about the cross is how it magnifies Jesus, how it exalts him. So with that in mind, let's turn to our text. and Let's see what God has for us this morning. I'm going to begin again in uh, verse 5. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I'm very thankful for your word. I'm thankful, God, that as we gather here, we come not to hear the wisdom of man, but we hear the wisdom of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak words that that accord with your truth. And I pray for all of us, God, um, give us ears to hear what you are saying and help us to look for those areas where we can uh, better understand you and better understand ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, my title, if, if you noticed it, uh, is The Super Exaltation of Jesus. And I get that from verse 9, which is kind of the, the central verse in our text. Verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Uh, the phrasing there, highly exalted, is unique in the Bible. You don't find it anywhere else. In fact, uh, Paul, he kind of made up a word. He took uh, the Greek for, for highly and elevated, and he smashed them together. And you got this new word, which was highly honored or super exalted. We don't, I don't really think we use the word exalted that much anymore, right? I can't remember the next time I've talked about exalting someone. We don't usually use that. But we actually, we do exalt people all the time. Because to exalt someone simply means to honor them or to celebrate something they've done. And we do this, we do this all the time. When any, whenever someone does something good, we usually give them a ribbon. We give them an award, right? If, if they're in a soccer team and they're your child, you give them a timbit, right? When they score a goal, say, way to go. You, you did that. That was great. Uh, even if they don't, we give them a timbit. But the point is that um, there are tons of ways that human culture exalts people, even highly exalts people. Halls of fame are reserved for those who are at the height of their career, uh, maybe in baseball, in football, in hockey. They're the best pitchers, the best goalies. Those who have done the very best in their field, they are highly exalted. We even have this for uh, musicians. We have gold records. We have Academy Awards for those involved in the movie industry. Even in different fields of science, we have Nobel Prizes. We, we, if we think about it, we really tend to exalt people all the time, and usually for good reason. They've done something significant, something amazing, and we want to recognize that. You notice in our text, though, that it's not human beings who are doing any exalting. It's actually God himself. It says that, therefore, God, that is God the Father, has highly exalted Jesus. It's good to ask the question, you know, why did God do that? Why is Jesus worthy of such honor? I, th I think sometimes as Christians, we don't always do a great job of answering that question. Uh, we tend to, to praise God and worship God, and we should. We come here and we sing lots of songs. Uh, if you're new here with us, if you're new to the church, you, you may have wondered at some point, man, these guys, they sing a lot about Jesus. That's all they talk about. What is, what is the deal? We sometimes assume that people know, certainly in families, as a Christian family, the tendency may be to simply tell our kids, hey, you need to honor Jesus, you need to do things God's way, here's a bracelet that stands for what would Jesus do, do that, okay? He's, he's the most important thing in your life, but we never maybe explain, or we don't often sit back and think, you know, why is it that Jesus is worthy of such honor? Well, that's actually what we find in our text today. Uh, before verse 9, we have... Uh, the reasons why we are to highly exalt Jesus. So we're going to look at two things, answer two questions. Number one, what is the basis for the exaltation of Jesus? Why do we honor him so much? And secondly, what's the uh, purpose or implication of the exaltation of Jesus in our lives? So first question, we'll deal with that first. What is the basis? Why do we exalt Jesus so much? Well, verses 6 to 8, all you know, leading up to verse 9, they really do lay the, the groundwork as to why God exalts Jesus. And uh, as maybe a helpful, just sort of visual for this, um, think of a medieval catapult, right? A medieval catapult, in case you forget, begins with the arm of the catapult held up very high like this. It's different, I found out this week, than a trebuchet, which is another medieval arms, which apparently is way better than a catapult, but it doesn't work for our metaphors. We're going to stick with the catapult, okay? <laughs> catapult, arm way up in the air. And so, as you see in the beginning, Jesus begins in the heights of heaven, 
And through these verses, we see his descent. He is compressed. He's brought very low. And then in verse 9, it springs back up again into the heights of glory. And so there's this beautiful rhythm that we see for Jesus as he humbles himself. It, in fact, leads to his exaltation. So we begin with the first reason to exalt Jesus. In the heights of heaven, number one, Jesus is God. We see this in verse 6. He was in the form of God. Uh, That word form, it doesn't mean that he was kind of like God. It means that he, in his very nature, inwardly and outwardly, was in the very nature of God. This is is why uh, the biblical idea of God is one of a trinity. One God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are not the same person, and yet they were equal in nature. Uh, We see this throughout the Bible. Even though the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, you can't really understand the Bible and understand the God of the Bible without seeing him as as three in one. So here's one example. This is Jesus uh, praying, Jesus the Son praying to God the Father. John 17, he says, I glorified you on earth, that's his ministry, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So that's Jesus speaking to God the Father, saying, before the world existed, I existed, and I had the same glory you did. So they're very clearly co-equal, equal in majesty, equal in glory, equal in power, and yet distinct in persons and distinct in roles. And we see here that that Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, he was God himself, he allowed himself to be brought low. And this is the second reason that we can and should exalt Jesus. Number two, Jesus emptied himself. Verses uh, 6 and 7. Here's the descent of the arm of the, of the catapult. He says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, he didn't, he didn't see that he should hold on, grasp, hold on to his divine nature by itself, but in fact, he emptied himself. Now, that term can be a bit confusing because typically, we think of uh, emptying like you have a crate, and you're taking things out of it, right? You're emptying the crate of its contents. But if we have that view, then what it means is Jesus took away some of his divine nature. And sometimes that has been taught throughout the centuries, that Jesus removed some of his divine nature and became a man. But if that were the case, then he would would cease to be God. And if God ceases to be God, he, he wasn't God in the first place. Jesus did not cease to be God. He continued to be God. And if you look... In the text, it actually explains what that uh, emptying means. It says he emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He didn't remove anything, he added something to himself. So a better way of understanding the emptying is instead of emptying a crate, think of emptying a jug of water into another container. So the question isn't, what did Jesus empty himself of? The question is, what did he empty himself into? And the answer is that Jesus emptied himself, poured his fully divine self into a human form, into a baby, which is the miracle of the incarnation, right? That shouldn't be able to happen, right? To take something so grand and majestic, he condensed his very divine nature into a form that should never have been able to hold it, like trying to pour a swimming pool into a teacup, right? Or or a dump truck into a child's beach pail. It never should have been able to happen, but by the power of God, he did it. So how, what did this look like? 
right? How is it that, that Jesus in all his glory could also be in the form of a human? Well, it's not that anything was taken away, but his divine nature was veiled. As people grew up with Jesus, they didn't have a sense that he was, he was divinely glorious. They thought he was Jesus from down the road. And just to give you an idea of what this would have been like, uh, I'm going to show you uh, a picture of one woman, but in two different settings. And what I want you to imagine is that you don't know this woman, and that you meet her in a park, okay? So imagine that you meet this woman in a park, okay? You don't know who she is, okay? Uh, You notice that she likes corgis, and she has a lot of them. They're, you know, ambling around. You talk to her for a little while. You see she's very pleasant. She's very proper. And uh, you go on with your day. If you didn't know her, if you didn't recognize her, you would have thought simply, well, that was a very nice woman. But of course, if you met her in this situation, you would know right away that, It's Queen Elizabeth. What's the difference? She didn't change. In the first image, she had just as much power and glory and authority as she does in the second. The difference is that it was veiled in the the first. Is that her, her regalia, that it demonstrates the glory that she has as queen. And it's very much the same with Jesus. When Jesus started doing ministry, there were people who said, hey, wasn't, isn't he the carpenter's son? Didn't we grow up with that guy? They had no idea. Why? Because it wasn't that he wasn't God. He was fully God, fully man, but his glory was veiled. And then as he did his ministry, we began to see glimpses of his divine power in nature. This is the wondrous thing about Christ. He, he didn't, I mean, with Queen Elizabeth, she just changed her clothes. Jesus did more than that. He actually took on flesh. He took on all of our weaknesses, all of our frailty. And in that, he suffered Why? Because he loves us and because it was his goal to demonstrate the glory of God as we're going to see. So, uh, second thing is that he emptied himself. That's why we can exalt him. Thirdly, Jesus willingly sacrificed himself. And here we see him brought very, very low. Um, It says in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, last week, Jeff, uh, he, he went through the horrors of Roman crucifixion. It was a demeaning and dehumanizing uh, thing. Not only was Jesus humiliated in his humanity, he was reduced to a pile of flayed meat hung on an instrument of torture. And the key to understanding the cross is not just to see the horrors of it, but also to see the willingness of Jesus to go to it, to submit to it. You notice in our text, it said there that he was obedient. Who was Jesus obedient to? Was it the Romans? Was it the the Jewish leaders? Was he obedient to Satan? Was he obedient to death itself? No. Jesus was only ever fully obedient to God the Father. And that's what we see here. That he was obedient That in his willingness to to be crushed, he was obedient to the Father. And this, this this demonstrates his love for us. It demonstrates, now look, we we seen that he's already he was God the whole time. Right? He could have escaped the cross at any moment. In fact, on his way to the cross, he made it very, very clear. Look, the only reason I'm here is because I want to be here. Look at this in John chapter 10. He says, For this reason. The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Jesus is saying, I'm here because I want to fulfill the plan of God. In his willingness, we see two things. One, we, we see his love for us that he was willing to go to this length so that we might have the hope of life. But secondly, sometimes we miss this. It's in his willingness that his sacrifice became perfect. See, there were a lot of sacrifices in the Bible up to this point. God established a sacrificial system where there were animals, perfect animals that were brought forward. They were meant to atone for sin. They were there to substitute because the wages of sin is death, but they never, they never did it properly. They never did it fully there's something missing. The missing thing for someone to truly substitute themselves for us is a heart that willingly follows God fully. Because we don't. In our sin, we follow our own will. I found a great... Uh, there's a commentator, Alec Mottier. He, he's just brilliant. And I thought he encapsulated this very, very well. So I'm going to read to you what he says about this. He says, whenever a sinner, this is in the Old Testament system, whenever a sinner brought his animal to the altar and laid his hand on a beast's head, the lesson was plain. This stands in my place. This bears my sin. Yet the substitution was incomplete. For the central citadel of sin, the will was left unrepresented in the uncomprehending, unconsenting animal. Only a perfect man could be the perfect substitute at the heart of this perfection lay a will delighting to do the will of God. Jesus willingly went to the cross to take the place of our unwilling heart. And in his willingness, we have even greater reason to glory and honor him. Because he did it not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He allowed himself to be crushed, to be compressed even further so that sin may be defeated so that we could be saved and so that the justice of God would be vindicated because God had passed over all those sins with all those sacrifices that never did the job properly. But now in Christ, we can see that God is completely just and completely merciful. And for three days, Jesus was separated from God the Father for the first time in eternity. And he remained there. He, he compressed his immortality into death, but, but it couldn't hold it. Right? It didn't stay there. Right? He, he, he was crushed and he was compressed and he was in darkness and yet three days later, as if someone had, had pulled the lever on the, the catapult of my metaphor and he sprung up. Right? He was resurrected and then he ascended then he returned to the heights of heaven and, and I just want, I think it's really important that we recognize the magnitude of this event. And so I'm going to read to you some of the passages of Scripture. They're not going to be on the screen. I just want you to hear how it is that, that God speaks about these events and how amazing and wondrous they are. Here's first the resurrection. Matthew 28. It says this, And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Come, see the place where he lay. And for 40 days, Jesus showed himself. 
He showed that the resurrection, the hope, when we hope in his name, it's not simply a spiritual resurrection that we have to look forward to. It's a bodily resurrection. He's saying, look, this is what happens when you trust in me. The life you have to look forward to is one where you will eat, you will drink, you will have fellowship. It's amazing, and I'm the way forward. So for 40 days, he revealed himself to people. He ate with them. He drank with them. And then he ascended to heaven. Here's Luke 24. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And then in heaven, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. The place of honor says this in Hebrews, he, that is Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then it says that Jesus will return one day. Not as, not as a child, but as a conquering king. And all of this, all of this honor and glory we see, it sort of ramps up to verse 9, which we already read. But that's because of all this, we see, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And it's not actually the name of Jesus. He keep reading. So that at the name of Jesus, yes, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. In your Bible, when you see that, you know that it means God. It means Yahweh. See, in the cross, in the, the exaltation of Christ, we see that Jesus is in fact God. This is the name reserved for God alone. In Isaiah 42, um, God says, I am the Lord. This is my name. My glory I give to no other. So look, it's not like, it's not like Jesus became more godly, right? He didn't, it's not like he earned his merit badges, his belt, and now he's fully God. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is that there's greater glory because through the cross, we have a much better understanding of who God is. There are things about God that we would never have known if it were not for the cross. Here are some examples. Because Jesus was willing to empty himself into humanity, we see not only his majesty, but also his compassion. Because Jesus was willing to live as we do, to be tempted as we are, we see not only his holiness, but also his empathy. Because he was willing to sacrifice himself on our behalf, we see not only his power, but also his mercy. And because, because he didn't stay dead, we see the grace of God, that God's heart towards even the worst sinner is not, not damnation, not destruction, but in fact healing and restoration and life. And so in the cross, the reason that we should exalt Jesus, super exalt Jesus, is because we come to know God more is because we have a greater understanding of who God is and how he, he loves us, what's in his nature and in his character. And so we're going to get to the implications of this in a minute, of like how we're to live, but, but isn't it good simply at sometimes just to step back and recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for us? Jesus is Lord of all creation, amen? He's the Lord of our salvation, amen? And so we, we praise him. It's good for us, for those of us who follow Jesus, simply in times of prayer, times of worship, to say, Jesus, I'm just amazed at who you are. I'm amazed, God, that, that when I behold the cross, it has such weight in my life, I see you more clearly. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to go there. 
But there are implications. As we said, if the cross is really weighty in our life, it's going to shape how we live. It's going to shape how we think, how we feel. And we see this in our text as well. So uh, question two, what's the purpose? What's the implication of the exaltation of Jesus? Uh, We see this in verses 10 and 11. Uh, The words, so that, are kind of the, so all of this happened, why? So that the name of Jesus, uh, sorry, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we see there? We see that the intended outcome of the exaltation of Jesus is that everyone in the universe submits to his authority and majesty. All the heavenly beings, all the earthly beings, all the beings under the earth, signifying the the angelic beings, us on earth, and even the demons, all of us will one day bow the knee, a picture of full submission to Jesus. It's a picture of the day when he will return, not as a little baby, but as a conquering king. And on that day, every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly. And if you're ever wondering, what what would that look like? Like, how is that going to happen? We know that it's going to happen at a time unexpected. Is he going to come? Is it going to show up on all the screens and devices we have? Is he going to be in the air? Is he going to... I don't know. I don't know any of that. But, but we do have a picture of what it will look like for everyone to bow a knee to Jesus. It's, it's in scripture. It's actually right before he's arrested. You may have missed this, but this is, this is fantastic. So we're going to take you to John 18. Here's the setup. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Jesus was in the garden. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So pause there for a minute. Uh, If you've seen this depicted on screen or like in a kid's um, animated feature, uh, usually what you see is Judas and some temple guards and some Roman soldiers. There's maybe a dozen men there. They're coming to arrest Jesus. But that's not what we would actually have seen if we were there. And the reason we know this is that this uh, term, a band of soldiers, that's actually uh, a battalion. The the proper word there is a battalion of soldiers. And a battalion of Roman soldiers was always about 600 men, maybe upwards of 1,000. The Romans always did everything with overwhelming force. So in this case, a battalion is dispatched to go and arrest a rebel rabbi. And so they send a battalion. Upwards of 600 men would have been descending on the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there to make sure that everything went smoothly. There was an overwhelming show, uh, you know, show of Roman force. So picture that, and now listen to what happens. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Everyone. Imagine 600 Roman soldiers who were trained for probably one thing, which is to stay on your feet. Right? When you're in battle, you need to stay on your feet. These guys were were trained. They were battle-hardened. They were ready at any moment to fight They were trained not to be surprised. And at the words of Jesus, they find themselves on the ground. This is a picture of the authority of Jesus. Notice, what does he say? What is it that makes them fall at his feet? He says simply, I am he. In the Greek, I am. It's the name of God. The covenant name of God, Yahweh. 
And at that name, every knee bows. That's a picture of the rightful authority that Jesus has. And, and the question then for us in light of this text is, when will we bow the knee to Jesus? It's clearly not a question of if. Based on, on scripture, it's not a question of if we will bow our knee, but the question is, is when? If you're, if you're new to Christianity, if maybe this is your first time, I would imagine that this kind of teaching is, is a difficult one. It may be that, that you're coming here and you're thinking, you know, this is, this is kind of why I have trouble with church. Because the church is always trying to put people down. It's always trying to put people in their place. Right? This idea of submitting to authority. I mean, to, to be honest, even for those of us in the church, this is tough. I think all of us struggle with the idea of submitting to authority. From a young age, we don't love it when people tell us what to do. And unfortunately, as we grow, there are people in authority over us who, who are not kind. It may very well be the case that you have had people in authority over you who have been harsh, who've been abusive, who have abused their power, and you've got to the place where you've said, I'm not submitting to anyone anymore. I trust myself. I don't trust anyone else. And so the idea that, that here in Scripture, we're told that Jesus claims authority over every being in the universe, and that eventually everyone will submit, that, that's tough to swallow. It's tough to understand. But don't miss the greater context of what's going on here. See, that night in the garden, there was, there was more going on than simply Jesus exerting his authority. See, after Jesus speaks... And everyone falls to the ground. Look at what happens next. Verse seven. So he asked them again, right? Imagine everyone's getting up. They're like, what, what just happened? He asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, I think maybe a little more cautiously, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. What do we see? we see his, his willingness to allow himself to be arrested. Why? Because he knows where it leads. It leads to a place where he saves us from sin. And look, even in that moment, he knows he's about to be arrested, beaten, tortured, mocked. And what's, who is he concerned about? He's not concerned about himself. He says, he says, if you want, you seek me, let these men go. He's concerned about his disciples. Isn't that the kind of leader that we've, we've always wanted to follow? Isn't that what we've always longed for in a parent, in a, in a teacher, in a coach, in someone who's got authority over them? Haven't we wanted someone who puts others first? Someone who sacrifices himself for the sake of those beneath them? One who acts out of compassion and love? Look, I, I get that it's difficult to, to sort of fathom what it means to fully submit to Christ, but before you reject him as Lord, know him as Savior. Recognize the fact that he has fully given himself in the most excruciating way because it was the only way for us to find life, for us to find hope. And so my appeal to you this morning, if, if you don't yet know Christ, spend some time in the word. Come and talk to us. For those of us who know Jesus, there is still another point of application. For those of us who have said, I, I know you as Savior, Savior and Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You've You've saved me from my sins. I want to live for you. 
I wonder if there are still some areas of our life, though, where we are not fully submitting. You'll notice that bowing the knee, that's a picture of full submission. And I'm not sure about you, but in my life, I know there are certain areas where it's easy to submit to God. Where for whatever way that God's wired me, it's just th- these things are easy to do. But over here, these things are tough. In fact, I don't even like thinking about these areas too much. There are areas of my, of my mind, areas of my heart, uh, habits of mind, ways that I feel, ways I treat people, that if I'm really honest about it, I've said, you know, this here over here, um, this is where my will is done. And I'm reluctant to open it all up because, because I'm still fearful of what that will mean, of how difficult it is. I wonder if there's an area of your life that you know Jesus is calling you to something and you've been, you've been reluctant to fully submit. And my question to you in light of, light of what we've seen is, I wonder what would happen. I wonder what peace could Jesus bring into your life with that kind of full submission. I wonder what kind of, what kind of spiritual life, what kind of healing. What we see here in our text is that Jesus is in fact worthy of all honor and glory. He is the Lord of the universe and yet he's also the one who came not to be served but to serve us. And our word this morning from God is that his great love for us is there in the cross but even more so, it's a display of the glory of God so that we might live for him so that in those difficult times when we're struggling with submission, we might remember that Jesus is rightly exalted That because he was willing to be made low, he is back up in the heights of glory and reigning and ruling and also, amazingly, because he visited us once, he's here with us also. So, the super exaltation of Jesus reminds us that there is only one Lord. His name is Jesus. And thankfully, graciously, he is also our Savior. And the intent of the cross is for it to have great weight in our lives for it to shape us and form us into everything that God wants us to be for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Lord God, I am very, very thankful, Jesus, for, for who you are, for what you've done. Jesus, I'm thankful that because this morning, Lord, for anyone here who does not have a hope beyond this life, Jesus, you have, you've shown us what you did, the extent that you went to to make sure that we can have a hope that goes beyond our sin, beyond death, into heaven, And Jesus, I pray that there would be those here this morning that find that hope. And I pray also, Lord, that you would would bring to mind your grace and your mercy when we struggle with our own sin, with our own uh, will, our own disobedience. God, the the great news is that that we don't have to be obedient anymore to earn anything. You've done that for us. But now, Lord, we we can live for you and honor you. And I pray, God, you'd help us to do that. Lord, would you, would you magnify yourself in our lives? Would you help the cross of Christ have great weight in our lives so that it might shape us in the way that we love others, in the way that we honor you. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.